Hello, everyone. On this episode of the Coach's Consult, we're going to be spending time with Seamus Mayhem, discussing feedback cultures and, more importantly, executive feedback. Seamus supports Fortune 100 companies and their executive staff in developing what we call upstream feedback. Seamus studied at the NYU Stern School of Business. He was the CEO of TD Bank USA. He was a partner at Booz Allen Hamilton and a general partner at Rosemark Capital. Now he manages Unta Strategies and McMahon Advisory in his work with elite executives in the technology, startup, and corporate worlds. Seamus is also a certified executive coach from the Berkeley Executive Coaching Institute, which is at the University of California, Berkeley. So while we want to stay focused on small to medium businesses in these conversations, what Seamus shares with us really is critical to not only the Fortune 100 companies, but to businesses across the spectrum. So I hope you enjoy, and I want to thank Seamus and all of you for joining us. Brandon, nice of you to invite me. My name is Seamus McMahon. Um, I'm an Irish citizen originally, a longtime U.S. citizen, proud of both. And my background in business, it started out in technology, and I've worked for some very large companies, um, big banks, big tech firms, big consulting firms, various leadership roles, and also done a couple of startups uh, with partners, uh, one of which uh, went very well, one of which didn't. So I kind of worked across the spectrum of uh, big and small. And over the last few years, what I've really migrated to is executive coaching. And I'm a certified coach, uh, certified by the Berkeley Executive Coaching Institute, BECI, which is part of the Haas Business School at Berkeley. And for anybody thinking about adding a series of you know, talents and assets to their bag of tricks as a leader, I can't say enough good things about good coaching training and specifically, I love my time at Berkeley. Okay. So that was about three or four years ago. Most of my personal practice is in larger organizations uh, where the CEO typically or a C-suite person brings me in. But I also have personal clients who have I've coached in that environment in many cases where they've known me from some previous part of my career and asked me just to coach them. Okay. So I uh, have done a little bit with people who are in the medium-sized business uh, world. And I've found essentially the coaching isn't very different. The questions that get asked are pretty similar. Mm-hmm. And it's typically a blend of what and how. So you know, what are people trying to get done and, and how best to go about it? Mm-hmm. And the idea with modern coaching is not to tell some of the answer to either of those directions or sets of questions, but to be a thought partner, helping them think it through and gently nudging them if they're skipping over something or, or maybe not reflecting. And I will break that sort of fourth wall occasionally and go, well, have you thought about X? So okay. they're not thrashing around too long. Yeah. It's, that's my business. Okay, wonderful. And you've done that primarily for Fortune 1000s in that space? I would say primarily Fortune 100. Okay, perfect. And Um, and for what we're going to talk about today, which really is the the feedback culture that we see, do you feel that that can translate well? Do you feel that there's enough of a uh, relatability between a Fortune 100 and a SMB? So... First of all, I would say it's a coaching culture. And I'll come back to the difference between that and feedback culture in a second. And I think that's absolutely critical for everybody listening to think about that and and see if that distinction is valuable for them. The relatability, clearly the scale of the problems, the 
organization and frankly the politics of you know a top 10 bank are not mm -hmm. similar to a family business with 20 30 40 people but the basic principles of how to get along with others in a productive sense in a business environment are exactly the same okay and i see the same issues cropping up in family business i was pretty close to a fam three generation family business and they had all the same issues compounded by the fact that they were family and had to go home and have dinner together occasionally. Yeah. Uh, so, but I'd like to come back to this notion of a feedback culture versus a coaching culture. And Berkeley is very strong on this point. Feedback is fine. Uh, when you get feedback, you can hopefully do something with it. Mm -hmm. The coaching adds to that the intent to help you get better. The okay. person coaching you is committed to your improved performance and to the success of the team. So when so we think about you it, consider like feedback, a lot of us know what a feedback loop is, is where we collect the feedback, we analyze it, implement it, we kind of review those, those changes and, and then we repeat that, right? That's that feedback loop that so many of us have learned about. Uh, and do you think it's critical to have a coaching element to that feedback loop? Yes, I, I think for two reasons. First of all, the feedback doesn't necessarily include how to improve. Okay. So someone could tell you that, you know, if you're a golfer, your golf swing is off and you're not addressing the ball squarely or something like that. Mm -hmm. But if you don't know how to then change your stance, change your grip on the club, uh, maybe even it's your mental game that you're, you know, just thinking too hard about longer shots versus shorter then that becomes coaching. Those become useful, hopefully usable tips so that the feedback gets translated into improved performance. So in this family business I, I was close to, really there was a, a gap between what the grandfather at this point had founded and, and thought he wanted to do with the business and what the grandchildren, the third generation wanted to do and there wasn't much feedback. Uh, I think they were intimidated by him and he kind of underestimated the second and third generations. But even when the feedback was delivered, there was no coaching about, hey, granddad, you're amazing. You have great insights. We want to hear them. Here's some other venues. Here's some other ways that you know, we might be able to kind of learn more from you. So... There's a sharp distinction in my mind between feedback which sort of stops at your door and, and lays on your mat. Um, mm -hmm. Hey, you know, you're not engaging with our suppliers the way we'd like and they're upset. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and they would like to know more about our scheduling and, and so forth versus, hey, why don't you take them out to lunch and understand more about, you know, their supply chain and their manufacturing process and you don't have to be a trained coach to coach okay when we think about it we're all trying to help each other succeed and if it's done with the right intent it's sort of open heart that okay. you're trying to really help the other person yeah you're going to mess up but if you do it with the right intent that will rarely be rejected Okay, well, and when you talk about intent, so the reason we originally wanted to, re we really started to dive into this conversation when we had talked at the time is because we were talking specifically about upstream feedback, that right. feedback that comes 
you know, because people have instilled and built a feedback culture. But I have seen a lot of situations, especially with SMBs, where the upstream is difficult for a number of reasons. One is that I don't want to get feedback. There's an ego issue. But more importantly, it's typically I want feedback. I just don't know how to implement the feedback because how do I know that I'm going to get quality feedback that is, you know, is, is clear and is not lacking trust and and there's not a fear built in. So you, we had talked about CEOs failing because they weren't allowing or didn't know how to secure this upstream feedback. So if you can touch a little bit on that, let's use granddad as an example. How does granddad build not only a feedback culture, like we had talked about, but more importantly, that upstream feedback and and what does, what, where is the, where are the failure points in that upstream feedback that you've seen? And so first of all, let me, let me make an observation that the size of an organization uh, can dictate the kinds of upstream feedback that are valuable and allowed. Okay. So, uh, so there is, are some structural elements. So if you take the U.S. Army, they do encourage upstream feedback, but the nature quality of it from a grunt, you know, a mm-hmm. private special uh, uh, at the front and may not get very far up the chain of command. But if you're in special forces, because so much less is understood about how to operate well. So in other words, the more uncertain the environment, the less hierarchical it generally is if you're trying to uh, maximize performance. More flux there is in the environment, the more chances are to mess up, to, to miss signals. And another environment, and I'll get to this sort of the hows in a minute, but I want to just okay. stay on some analogies here. So Perfect. if you're in a commercial plane, you know, unless you have a complete phobia about flying, you feel very safe. Okay. And some of it is, you know, the machinery and the you know, redundancy and so forth. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but a big part of it is a change in behavior in the cockpit that started after some completely ridiculous crashes in the 70s and 80s. And it's known as crew resource management. And basically it means that the second officer, the one in the right seat gets yeah. to speak up and say, she doesn't think the captain is doing the right thing or is missing something. And that has avoided so many you know, near misses, et cetera, because and the US was the first country to really put this into, into action. And the more hierarchical countries around the world, some Asian countries in particular, were very reluctant to question the, the captain. Yeah. And ended up with the accidents were completely avoidable and would never have happened in an American airline. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm gonna stay on this criticality issue. So if, if you're the captain, if you're the granddad, and you believe that uh, feedback is mission critical, right? It's not a nice to have, it's going to determine whether there'll be a fourth generation for this business or whether you end up selling, then mm-hmm. you will take steps that you might not if you thought everything was copacetic and, and you know, there wasn't much variation and much risk in the business. So now I think it really, it's very hard to implement this kind of coaching culture from the bottom. Okay. You know, if, if granddad or the CEO doesn't buy into this either because they don't perceive the environment as very threatening Mm-hmm. or their egos just they're not built for this or they've never had good coaching so they they fear it they they're confusing with being told by a teacher that they're lousy at something with no help to get through the algebra quiz yeah 
it's very difficult. Um, so either the, the board, if there is one, you know, and if they're engaged enough can see this, whether it's a nonprofit or for profit, or the CEO, or the founder typically has to be, they have to be driving this process. It's not reasonable to expect it to come bottom up. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't mean that everything is fair game in coaching the first time around in particular. You might say, look, we, we want to get feedback flowing up and we want to focus it on a few areas where we really believe that could be valuable. Now, do you need an external coach or, or intervention? I think if you have no history of this and the leadership is skeptical, you probably do. Just to kind of get through that initial reluctance, concern. And one of the reasons you might need it is that more junior people, uh, people further down the hierarchy may not believe that you're sincere and may not believe in anonymity, may believe they will get in trouble for speaking truth to power. So the second reason you may need help from an external resource is just to provide a buffer. Yeah, a safety zone that can safety help implement it. And, yeah. you know, someone who can build um, trust with mm-hmm. people who feel vulnerable about giving this feedback. Now, let's talk to the CEO who doesn't, isn't, is on the fence, isn't sure that feedback is important, especially upstream feedback. Let's put aside yeah. a feedback yeah. culture and, and organizational feedback. But say I'm a CEO and, and you were working with me, what are some either stories or situations or even a one, two, three of why I really should want to instill a, an upstream feedback type of, of culture? sometimes the most direct route isn't the most effective here. Okay. So, (laughs) uh, you know, if you have a stubborn uh, and maybe prideful CEO. Okay. Who has been doing her job job for a long time and and probably is pretty damn good at what they did before, even Mm -hmm. if they're not very good at what they do now. You know, this is that Peter principle that many of us came across in college. We, you keep getting promoted because you're at least adequate at what you're doing now yeah. until you get promoted to doing something you're no good at, right? Mm-hmm. So the theory is everybody senior is actually awful, <laughs> which is not true. But, but in a situation like that, so I'm going across the spectrum where some people will say, look, I know we've got issues of transparency, of culture, of engagement, and I know I'm part of the problem. Uh, help me, right? So let's say that's one end of the spectrum. Yeah. And the other is, hey, yeah, I mean, we're not performing the way we should in some areas here. I just need to crack the whip a little harder. Um, you know, the beatings will continue until like everyone's singing, you know, happily, right? Um, if I get more towards, if I, I get a client who is really sort of hedging and defensive and maybe the board has asked me to come in, or they have gotten enough feedback that they're like, you know what, even if it's window dressing, I kind of better do this. And I've had those situations. What, I'll, I'll be a little elliptical about it. And I'll say, what would you like to see improved in the team working directly for you? Right? What would be one, two, three major upgrades in terms of, and, and he or she might say, you know, I would like the various regions, geographic regions that don't work very well together to play nice. Okay. I would like the functional, you know, areas like, like sales and, and marketing work, sales together. and marketing, yeah. 
I'd like credit and marketing to work to work better together so we could expand our customer base. You know, yeah. Th- th- there's always something. There's so, always so something. You you believe that that is critical to not only have that upstream, or sorry, not not only to have the downhill kind of feedback and the feedback loop, but that upstream is but, critical to that. Well, that might give me an opportunity. I'd say, well, let me go talk to all nine or ten of the people who work for you about this topic, and. And then inevitably, they're going to bring up issues of what the boss does wrong. And the real mm-hmm. problem here is the boss never gets this together or the boss does this or she or he doesn't do that. Yeah, how you sort through the complexity, the nature, and, and the, like you said, the, the second officer has, that, has that, that experience to be able to ask those questions and earned it. So how, yeah. do you, you know, how do you sort through that, I think, is a critical part. But yeah, keep, keep going, well, I want to diverge. So I'll get back to, you know, in, in institutionalizing a culture of feedback like, you know, American Airlines or Delta has, right? Yeah, that's like took. a whole nother kind of yeah. video, right? <laughs> yeah, but, but there are ways, you know, you have to, this is where if there's something to be learned from a, a cockpit moment, yeah. it doesn't stay in the cockpit. The exam, this is why everything's recorded. ATC, everything mm-hmm. in the cockpit is, there is, you never see the same as I wouldn't say never. You seldom see the same mistake twice in American commercial aviation, mm-hmm. because if there was an issue of communication, of management of the systems, you know wherever it appeared, people will single that out, learn from it, and come up with let's say a plane taxis accidentally onto the wrong runway. Yeah. Now there's like three different things to stop that, including software, mm-hmm. but also. Runway two on, runway two on, right? Like they yep. say it three times. That almost never happens anymore. So fail safe mechanisms, things of that nature. Yeah, they'll build redundant mechanisms once they've spotted it as a problem. So there's a reason that aviation's gotten safer and safer. Yeah. So similarly, in building this culture and this feedback culture, so the captain gets it. Initially, the, the captain may be reluctant, might might be blaming the flight attendants and the second yeah. officer. Yeah, grand. So, <laughs> Right. So yeah. what I do and different coaches have, have different approaches okay. is I believe in candor with compassion. So if I realize, hey, you know, the boss is, okay, that's great. Yeah. If the boss is a bit of the problem here or a lot of the problem here, and I'm gonna sit her down or sit him down, I'm gonna say, Yeah, you know, there's some issues here between the functional groups or geographies or the generations in the family business. But and you might throw me out after this, but there's some things that you probably could do to uh, help this situation. Yeah. And I've never come across a moment after that where they go, I don't care. Yeah. Never. They are like, oh, really? So what am I doing wrong? It's like, not necessarily anything you're doing wrong. And I'm not sure I know what the answer is, but here, let's talk about some perceptions about ways you could improve this situation, including maybe listening to them. Now, and that is important, and I think when it ha- comes from an issue that's been identified, or it comes from the board, or even family that, yeah. that identifies this issue, what about, you use the term window dressing, I think a lot of small business owners, medium business owners, are going to say, well, that's wonderful, but we're just still trying to scale, we're trying to get our product out there, we're trying to build a sales team, and CEO feedback, I feel like that's window dressing. At that level, and even, even if you have stories at the higher level that you feel you could, you could relate to this, is, 
is that window dressing at that level? Is it just no. not really critical at that point? No, I, I think the opposite is true. What, why you do know, you think if, that? if you have a well-established business that's been running for a dozen years or more and has pretty stable revenue flows and pretty well-functioning HR department, I mean, there's a lot of inertia to that system, okay. typically, unless something drastic changes in the industry, let's say, right? Or COVID or something. Mm. What's that expression in, in Latin that translates as beginnings are delicate times? Okay, yeah. And any startup is, you know, one or two months of cash flow away from failure. I know, because I've done a couple of short, short runways with the pilot, pilot example. Very <laughs> short runways and yeah. heavy loads to get off yep. that runway, right? Yep. And you're subject to turbulence all around you because you're just little. And I would say the impact of any one of the say 10 or 12 initial people in that business is so much greater than anyone except maybe the top 10 or 11 people and maybe greater than even the top 10 or 11 people at JP Morgan. Mm -hmm. Probably there's enough fail safes in place that even Jamie Dimon probably couldn't ruin that bank no matter how hard he tried. Okay. But, but one person making an ill-advised uh, professional or personal decision in the first, you know, 180 days, two years of that business and it's toast. Yeah. An industry conversation with a competitor, uh, inappropriate interpersonal relationship with somebody else there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't have to be, oh, I got the Excel spreadsheet wrong. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so it's even more important. These are the, like the special operator teams. There's no hierarchy once they get down, uh, downfield. Okay. You know, there's no, I'm the lieutenant and you're the, no, that doesn't exist. It's like, you missed that signal and our, you know, exfil is going to be, we're going to blow it. Mm -hmm. And by the way, this is the same in the Israeli army, in the IDF, like the youngest 18 year old doing her national service can call out a general and they go by first names. So they institutionalize some mm -hmm. of that cockpit hygiene yeah. in the IDF hmm. because their environment is so much in flux. And any startup company, their environment is totally in flux, their micro environment. So it's not window dressing. It's a, it, think about there were 10 or 11 of us stranded in a, a life raft after a ship sank, right? Mm -hmm. Feedback would be crucial. It would be immediate. It would be, don't tip that water overboard. Don't do this. Don't do that. Do you see what's behind you? But as a business owner, sometimes feedback can just cause too much noise, can cause chaos. Uh, do you find that, or is is that just is that a, just a, a belief or an ego driven statement? You know, I think that's a genuine concern, and we we're not looking for the real housewives, right? Kind of feedback. Okay. Right. So we have. I mean, I we have black box uh, mechanisms. We have fail safes. We have now we're housewives. Okay. I right. like another another analogy. <laughs> it's I mean it's entertaining, right? But the feedback yeah. they're giving each other, I'm not sure is you know, coaching feedback all the time, right? Okay. There's, so there can be feedback that um, is basically another way of venting because people don't feel like yes. they're listened to. It, that's, it a great, not... that's a great way to phrase it. Feedback versus venting and how to yeah. understand the two. But yeah, keep going, sorry. So, so I think the, the point of feedback, even if you don't add the coaching element to it, mm -hmm. is to address a material business problem that at least potentially has a solution, mm -hmm. 
right? And that could be in the human resources in a personal area. It could be in managing credit lines to um, you know, customers. Um, so it could be pretty much anywhere along the spectrum we think of as hard versus soft problems. Yeah. And, but it has to be material to the business performance and it has to admit of at least uh, in prospect a business solution. Otherwise, it's venting. Okay. That's a and very I'm not good dismissing venting because typically underneath that, there is a real business issue. Yeah. And I see a lot of examples, I should say. I don't see, but I've, I've read or heard of examples and talked to clients where straddling that line between feedback and venting has become an issue, yeah. especially in a culture of listening, which is wonderful. But when does listening you know, take it too far? So having an addressable problem that has a potential solution is that key distinction. And think about it if that's not true. Let's say you set up this very, you know, accepting, warm, at least superficially warm culture around listening, mm -hmm. right? And you can think about uh, how Title IX offices, you know, started on campuses, right, to address uh, real and perceived inequities. Very well intended, but if you can't address the problem brought to you, then not only... Um, well, you're going to disappoint the people coming in. You're going to undermine the credibility of, of that function, whether it's from HR or title line office or just a line manager saying, you know, my door is always open. But in the end, that creates a sense of hypocrisy because people know you're not going to fix the perceived disparity in pay. Or why did the boss's cousin get that job? And we won't go into the how, like we said, we can, we can put that in maybe in another episode, but you, know, you, you can do that through surveys. There's a lot of mechanisms and ways out there that yeah. consultants and coaches can provide that for you. Um, but staying on, on the why part of it, um, do you have, because you're your former CEO of TD Bank, you were a partner at Booz Allen Hamilton, right? Uh, and, and now with your coaching strategy in the Fortune 100s, what are some great stories or analogies or whatever else we can use that you think would kind of drive that home in, in, in a culture that really required, had a business issue that required that upstream feedback. Yeah. So obviously I won't name names, but I was invited into a Fortune 100 financial services company initially to coach a very uh, brilliant and high-performing, some ways high-performing uh, executive that was, let's put it this way, was breaking China, you know, all over the place, you know, okay, very, so. e e very ego-driven, et cetera. Like destroying relationships and business yeah. processes. And, 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 and basically saying, hey, they don't like me because I, I look different because I'm this demographic or, and so forth. And Which is, I mean, as we know, is a, is a true concern that needs oh, to be yeah. addressed at times. Yeah. But you felt in this particular situation, it was maybe not as warranted as you, as they had suspected. So, so I did a 360 for this person. Okay. And told her to her, she wanted to be to only talk to her supporters, of which there were many, and not her detractors, of which there were also many. Okay. So I talked to both, obviously. And I went back to her and I said, you know, um, the people who love you and the people who can't stand you have exactly the same four things to say about you. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. 
exactly the same four things. And the difference is the detractors don't get enough benefit out of you that the good things for them don't outweigh the bad things. Either from a business perspective, you, you're not relevant enough, or from a personal perspective, their tolerance for the bad things is lower. Okay. But, but the weather is exactly the same out there. Some people are going out with an umbrella and some are not. Mm -hmm. So that got me pretty deep, you know, down a level or two from the CEO who was a, a friend actually, an ex-colleague and a friend. And, um, and what I noticed was he was surrounding himself as he had done in previous roles where I'd known him with people who thought and behaved exactly like him. Very analytical, very data-driven. Okay. Kind of small picture, not big picture, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Zooming out always to the industry strategy questions, more kind of perfecting operations you know, in the business. Yeah. And so I, I was able to sit him down at dinner. This guy liked to have dinner at like 6 p.m. because he got up at 4 a.m. One of those. <laughs> okay. 5.30 is the best Peloton. I can do so far. That's yeah. <laughs> 5.30. Right? I mean, I'm an early morning person, but yeah, dinner, I would fly in from the West Coast. So dinner for me, it was like 3 p.m. Yeah. And, and I'd go through, you know, whatever he'd ask me about in this uh, case, this executive. And then I'd say, and I actually have some thoughts for you. You know, people would like to see more of you in an interpersonal setting. You, you haven't flown to have dinner with people and their spouses or life partners. Mm. You know, they never see you, you know, off stage. How did that go? Because you essentially, pun intended, spun the table around where yeah. he's expecting you to provide feedback about his subordinate, yeah. I imagine. Uh, um, it was two levels down, actually. Yeah. Okay. And then you're doing that to him. Was that, do you feel that that was really necessary and effective where, or just you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't hold yourself back? No, no, I could definitely hold myself back. I wasn't, I was not keen. He's a pretty austere kind of guy who doesn't show his emotions much. So you felt this was critical to the overall I said, task. Yeah, I think I said the real issue here, like this is one individual and we'll sort her out. And yeah. we, we did. We got her back on track. I mean, we, the collective, um, and she went on to do very well, actually. Um, but I said, there, I sense there's some underlying issues. She's crossing domains, which has caused me to interview across domains, which is, you know, people have said, hey, you know, would you be willing to tell him that this is a symptom of something else hmm. right and so i think this is one of the places where an outsider can say you know what, what can he do he can fire me yeah. I, i've got other clients right? <laughs> yeah i don't know i would have had this conversation if i had been his subordinate i don't know that i would yeah um and he is the one that hired you for this task yeah yeah. Okay. So you felt that, you know, as a, as a kind of shareholder in this process that, that you just, you just had, I owed, uh, I owed him more. I owed yeah. him more. Yeah. I'm a professional and I, and I had at least a hypothesis about something else that was going on. And essentially like a lot of these companies, there were executives who had grown up in other companies, mm -hmm. you know, erstwhile competitors and so on. So there were four or five cultures operating here that had never been integrated so the rabbit and, hole got deeper, it seemed. Yeah. But it was like there was five rabbit holes and there was no burrows connecting them. So they would just pop up occasionally at you know, meetings and stare at each other in complete confusion. And then and go, talk oh. behind their back as they left. And, and then there'd be all, <laughs> all this factionalism. And 
and I said, you didn't create it, you inherited it, but you're not making it any better. Yeah. Yep. Salt in a word kind of Unless idea. you do, you're going to see more and more of these cases where, you know, what you were trying to create was a tiger team to work across and they get decimated because they don't have the support of all the relevant stakeholders. Yeah. And, and I think that points back to our original question for this whole conversation, which is if I'm an SMB, why do I have to, or why should I really develop upstream feedback? And it, it is because that you, you can systemically get rid of some of these issues from the get-go. Or they can destroy you. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it calls you to flourish or, or calls you to... Yeah, a team of you know. 10 or 11 people can have you know, factions that can't stand each other and won't work together. So high level, high altitude. In that story where you worked with this individual, what are maybe one or two of the maybe like two key elements that helped after you gathered the data and shared the data, the critical pieces or mechanisms that really caused a big change? It first was simply getting this guy to acknowledge to his subordinates, his direct team of 10 or 12 people, that he had received feedback, that it was eye-opening, uh, that he was open to more feedback um, to address you know, this topic or one or two topics, not everything. Yeah. So let's narrow it, let's focus it. And that he was giving complete anonymity to his team to work through me and that he wouldn't promise to change anything, but he would promise to think about it all hmm. and, and be candid with him whether he was gonna change or not change. And interestingly, when I went and talked to each of the folks, and these are all extremely talented, very successful you know, in their careers. Yeah. Um, I developed sort of a rapport with them where there would be three levels of confidentiality or lack thereof, right? One was, I'm just going to vent to you because I have no one to vent to, but I don't want you to tell them I just said this. Okay. Okay. It stays <laughs> in the room, right? Fair enough. Forget about it as soon as you, know, you stop. <laughs> yeah. Second, he needs to hear this, but it, he can never know it came from me. All right. So you've got to somehow figure out that, you know, if it looks like it'd only have come from me, I, then we can't share it, right? You yeah, gotta figure yeah. that out. Mm -hmm. And the third is, you can tell them it came from me, but I'm gonna use swear words and you need to make it nice. I don't know how to say this. Okay. And that's where the coaching comes in, that, or the, the consultant or the support, yeah. to be able not only to be objective, but to know how to deliver it, sort Remember it. I, I said, you know, candor with compassion. compassion. Yeah. Because this person, man or woman is, lonely i mean that's the further up you go the lonelier you are because you don't really have peers think about it you're on the executive committee and you're the head of hr the cfo or head of technology or marketing or sales or r d or whatever it is by definition your domain is distinct enough from the others <clears throat> that you you know you have expertise they don't have and vice versa so you can talk about how to handle the boss. You can maybe share industry perspectives, but you're pretty much on your own. Now you go up one more level, you're completely on your own. Mm -hmm. So unless you've created a culture of coaching that includes yourself, where there's respect, there's real business issues to be addressed, then you get no coaching. Mm -hmm. 
none whatsoever. You can't expect this to emerge uh, from the team in a way that's useful to you and not scary to them unless you carefully built that culture. Yeah. And you're not going to get it from the board, typically. They're just going to fire you. <laughs> right? Yeah. Their job is not to manage you in, in the American legal system. So Their even... Job- from an organizational level, there's a level of, we, we had talked about, if I'm a CEO of a small company, why should I do this? Well, A, to improve systems, and, and B, to stop bad things from growing within the organization, weak points, but also, and, and organizationally overall, but you're saying selfishly to yeah. self-preservation. I mean, I, I've got friends as serial, successful founders in Silicon Valley, and uh, one of them after a remarkable, you know, like string, it's like two or three, but at his age to have done, I think it was three successful startups and exited all of them. The one that was closest to his heart, it was sort of a passion project. It wasn't that he saw just a business issue, but he saw an opportunity to use technology to maybe address it. He got so deep in the weeds is my, I wasn't coaching him, you know, anecdotal, but I think he got so deep in the weeds of, execution he completely lost track of the strategic positioning of the company yeah and the board fired him and he didn't even know he was in trouble wow, wow. because the sales numbers were, were okay so the company just, was performing they just didn't feel he was they, yeah they felt it was a dead end hmm. they were adding in a nutshell they hadn't cracked the problem to use machine learning, they were throwing more and more bodies at it, which was unsustainable, and he was too close to it. Yeah. And a good place to start would be contact, you know, um, Columbia on the East Coast is great, right? I've known okay. people graduate from there. Berkeley on the West Coast. But any, any good business school, I think, will have, most of them will have a coaching program. Mm-hmm. And... There are um, principles, and I would ask, what are your principles of coaching? You know, okay. How do you coach? What are you trying to achieve? What does it feel like to be coached by one of your graduates? Hmm. So modern coaching is very much, as we touched on, about um, empathy, uh, open-ended questions, uh, trying to match the energy. There, there's some principles here. And actually, Berkeley uses um, theater and singing to kind of liberate some of that energy. They're, they're all theater majors originally or something okay. like that in the business school. I mean, it was, it was groundbreaking for me. I'd, I'd had coaching and consulting yeah. primarily, a little bit in banking. I was very uh, unsure of what I got myself into at the beginning of it. Right? Doing, so know. do we have clips of you singing and dancing? Yeah, there's, they're out there. They're out there. <laughs> okay. The basso profundo section of this choir. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to adding that to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I'm not sure that's leaving. <laughs> uh, but we acted, and so I think getting a sense of the culture, ethos, style of of the person or the group that you're sourcing from. Two, there's chemistry. There just has to be. So I have an interview. Uh, interview. I have a meeting set up tomorrow with someone from a top five tech company, global tech company, that his boss was someone I coached in a Fortune 100 financial institution. And okay. his boss, my, and he's become a friend, texted me and said, hey, I'm a great guy. I think he could use some coaching of the kind you do. 
but you know, it's sort of like dating. You know, if the first date doesn't go well, then it doesn't matter in theory that you're a good match. So you know? you're talking about chemistry. Do you also feel that there has to be a level of trust in order to start 100%. or can that be built over time? Well, there has to be a, an initial level of trust to sort of put some chips you know, on the table. Right? And do I get that by work? Maybe I look for people that I've worked for. So you're saying call the coaching school. But should I really find somebody else, another coach, another consultant, or somebody in that fashion that yeah. I really trust yeah. and work 100%. with? And say, who would you yeah. recommend? Did you okay. have you worked with a coach? Um, did how did it go? Would you recommend her or him? Mm-hmm. Right. And, sorry, another great way to go is just through your network. And I think uh, I was talking to uh, a young, youngish, you know, mid thirties, but very senior executive at a large endowment investment for, uh, for a big university. And she said, um, she actually has two coaches. She has a career coach and she's just um, hired one for public speaking, which is something she wasn't comfortable with. And she said, it's mind blowing to me that people would think that they could have world-class or even superior performance without having a coach. No athlete would think that. Hmm. And I was actually sitting on a plane a couple of years ago uh, from Atlanta to Miami and my seatmate, turned out to be the sports psychology coach for, uh, you know, a top 10 basketball team. Um, and it was, I listened to her like the whole flight. It was fascinating. These are name brand, you know, athletes yeah. and big egos and best in the world of what they do. And every one of them has a coach, mm. like a psychology coach. They have multiple coaches. They, they have coaches for flexibility, they have coaches <laughs> yeah. for meditation. Yeah. I mean, they, they really do. At that level of Formula One or something like that, every nuance that they can improve, like the golf tour. So we don't have to do that, right? We're not at that level. We don't have time for that. No one's going to pay for our time for that. But yes, I think, you know, if I were looking for, if a friend of mine is a professional athlete said, boy, I could use some help. I go, well, I'm probably, and people I know are probably not the right, but I still have this woman's number. Want me to reach out and see if she knows someone. Okay. So I do. I think that that's a great uh, other path. And then I think, um, you know, if, if you, if the coach sounds like a know-it-all to stop. Okay. They're, they're, they don't, you know, they're not in your shoes. They're not going to be the ones that get fired. You know, if this thing runs out of cash. Right. Yeah. So it's a bit like, you know, the, the difference between um, the chicken and the pig and the ham and eggs breakfast. Are you familiar with this? No, I'm not. The, the, the chicken is involved, but the pig is committed. Okay. <laughs> All right. I like so that. The, 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 I mean, I have, so I, what I do promise um, the people that I coach is I'll always be candid. Um, I, I'll be available, you know, in, yeah. in a pinch, not just when it's scheduled. And if it isn't working, I will pull the plug uh, as quickly as I would expect them to. Yeah. And if you don't hear that kind of language and you don't believe it, then I would like keep looking. Okay, that's very helpful. And you know, the great thing we uncovered today is a lot of dance and theater majors might have a new career based on this conversation. <laughs> so, so if you're not sure you how to use that degree. Well, yeah, it was interesting to me. There were a couple in in the in the group, and they were phenomenal because. They engaged. And actually, I also want to touch on another point, a question that um, sometimes comes up. Is it important or even critical that the coach 
know our industry or okay. even our corner of the industry? Really good question. And the answer is no, it's not. Um, there are phenomenal coaches that basically are helping you think through your career strategy, your team strategy um, for kind of your professional career. They are not in any way trying to help you think through what do I do with this voice recognition software or with this brokerage business. That's a very different type of consultant. Or, yeah. Yeah. And, and at Berkeley, they would argue, uh, just represent fairly here, maybe Columbia is so much better if they don't understand your business because then they're not going to try and become a business consultant. Mm -hmm. um, so I recently have been talking to the CEO of a very large hospital group and both my kids are physicians, but that doesn't mean I know anything about the numbers behind. Yeah. So I, I, I think going in there, I would probably be much more in the sort of classic kind of um, operational coach mode, not strategy consulting. Yeah. But when I'm in financial services, I'm probably going to stray across that line to save time. I'm going to go, okay, I, yeah, I get the issue with, you know, fees or mergers in your, in this space. So let's talk about, you know, how you and the team are thinking about that. Yeah. So, well, that's um, yeah, I, th I think there was one other point that you brought up and uh, I'm actually, but, um, oh yeah, it was, so how do you, what's the process feel like? I know we weren't getting to, but let me just touch on that, right? Yeah, so let's say helpful. the CEO or the CEO and two others go, you know, this woman has what we think it's going to take to engage and gain the trust of the rest of the team that we want to bring into this. Um, there, there's going to be skepticism. Yeah. You know, if you've Naturally. done this before and you don't have this culture, they're going to go, this is window dressing. I'm going to get in trouble. And so I would bite off like a bite-sized chunk. Don't tackle what's wrong with our culture question. It's too big. So you're talking about tackle what's most imminent, like sales and marketing having an issue. Yeah. Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah. or right. if there's a granddad and you really want to talk about or open up, maybe if it is everybody believing that granddad should transition out. Yeah. And and how, do we do, how do we do that? Yeah. While maintaining his self-respect and, right, and not and losing. So lead, lead with that. That, that high Don't priority. tackle the whole waterfront of potential issues. Yeah. And, and move through it in stages. Have an initial listening tour. That's what the coach should do. Then he or she synthesizes some one or two or three points to bring back to the sponsors. Okay. And, and at that point, if you as a coach don't think that this is uh, being really processed and has at least some chance of being constructively engaged with, I would get out of there now. Okay. And, and do you feel, that, I mean, I guess we, we know that they're the ones paying, but the shareholder or, or the, uh, you know, project management, the one just paying for the process, if you don't feel like it's being successful, do you try to see that process through or do mm -hmm. you potentially just skew to a, finding a new partner? You, look, I, I typically don't, I'm going to get in trouble for this. Um, be, be political in your answer. So if I feel like there's a, some, some firms have coaching processes that feel to me like window dressing. Okay. 
they're okay we we owe as part of the contract with certain levels of executives not we owe them a certain amount of dollars of coaching mm -hmm. and this person sort of stuck so okay fine but if if that person's boss isn't supportive and engaged i don't care what hr wants to do it won't work yeah and and i don't want to go through six months of you know once a month twice a month whatever the yeah you know where i, I can't see a path to the sea for that person mm -hmm. i can't see this river opening up into the next level of opportunity for them so being so, uncomfortable is fine and should be a big part of this yeah and working through that but you're talking that if you just feels being ineffectual to be able to call that out and and yeah, I have no interest in yeah. too old to, you know, got too many other things to do. It may, may sound selfish and it is. I just, if I think this can't be really helpful to that person in the team, then I'd sooner not be involved with it. Yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate it. This, I think we've coined a number of terms today that I think we're going to trademark and we'll co-author <laughs> and co-share that. Um, we've helped theater majors so yeah. nothing else we've, we've we've done those things today that's great so we should just go to starbucks and like <laughs> call it a day right um so thank you very much and uh yeah i, I appreciate your time yeah it was a lot of fun brandon thanks for asking me to participate